Hey, hello, welcome. Welcome back, everybody. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us once more. If you're brand new, welcome. Uh, we're brought to you this week by our sponsors, Go Deep Flotation. I'm going to get into that in a moment, but again, I just want to say a massive thank you for the gratitude that we have for everybody. We've had nothing but lovely comments. Only two episodes have gone out, but it's just been mad. Uh, receiving lovely comments and and people sharing things and you know the community's growing off of the bat like I said mentioned before you know there's a little community growing in America we got messaged uh, people spoke to us from Australia saying how much they loved it and they've shared it and everybody asking about floating so um, yeah go deep flotation we are our sponsors we're sending people to them with a the code chew you can get 10% off a float i explained what it was in the intro last time if you didn't get that i'll give you a quick quick overview now it's 10 inches or 11 inches of water filled with epsom salts it's heated to skin temperature as is the air with inside the pod the pod is just like a big beautiful bath with a lid on uh, you've got lovely led lighting in there and they play some lovely audio it might be um sort of a you know jungle sounds or whale song or something like that something lovely for 10 minutes when you get in and just about as the audio cuts off you kind of you lose the sensation of where you end and the water begins and it really kicks in the silence and the darkness and you and there's all sorts of amazing, beautiful things happening with the with the float itself physically, the alleviation of gravity, inflammation, um, wear and tear on the joints, the bones. Um, it's an amazing thing for the body physically, but also mentally, psychologically, you're just literally having a spring clean. I mean, I think if you did listen to the Matt, Matt episodes, he talks about early in episode one, the overwhelming thought processes, you know, we do all sweep a lot under the rug. There's a lot going on. Life is busy. It's digital. We're wired in. You've got WhatsApp, Messenger, texts, you know, group texts, you know, that thing, this thing, everything's just 100 mile an hour. And, and getting in that tank is a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's not, you know, it takes two or three floats to actually sort of let yourself let go because we are so deeply connected to everything. To just lay in the dark in that wonderful, beautiful, soft environment feels it feels weird. It feels abstract. And I guess it sounds abstract, but really it's really simple, isn't it? You're just, you're just in a comfortable environment on your own, left with your thoughts. And it's a wonderful thing to do. And I... The guys have mentioned to us that they've had an influx of people floating and people booking floats, so it's been amazing. So Go Deep Flotation, they are wonderful people. They look after everybody. Get yourselves over there, get floating, use the code CHEW, 10% off. You get in there for 60 minutes, cut off from the world, cut off from this bloody phone that's amazing and also terrible, and just chill, just chill out and enjoy yourself for an hour um, and take take those rewards back into your life. GoDeepFlotation.com, check them out. Okay, um, massive thank you for all the support we've had. It's just been overwhelming. It's been mad, just lovely messages. Two episodes have gone down great. We went down um, to see the Pod Bible Issue 7 launch in London at the King's Place. I'm going to talk to you more about that at the end, but that was lovely. We uh, we touched base with with some lovely podcasters and people from the podcast community and the guys that have put the magazine together themselves, as well as Mr. Scroobius Pip, who is uh, you know running the Distraction Pieces Network, which has really helped the British UK poverty, uh, podcasting push on. So that was really nice. So we'll get to that in the outro. In the meantime, we're going to get on with episode three. This is Miss Amanda Wanowski. 
we covered a lot of ground here. Amanda is a super interesting, super educated lady. Um, really lived a life of determination to prove the point. Uh, she's she's from London. Her parents, uh, dad, dad was from the UK. Her mum was from Trinidad. Um, she ended up in foster care in her sort of mid early mid teens. Um, watched a Rocky montage and then that was it. That was trying to set her off from the rough estate she was living in on a on a mission to run and to, she found some kind of solace, some kind of peace from running and that led to being picked up and you know becoming a professional athlete and then that led to all sorts of um, yeah uh, physical endeavours that she followed with canoeing and rowing and all sorts of things um, with a dream to get to the Olympics. Uh, and as, as the story unravels, she ended up in uh, on the front line in Afghanistan as a medic in the theatre. And the story it does it, it bends and weaves all around the place. And she she's now a hypnotherapist. And as you'll find out during this conversation, she uses all of this experience and all of these life lessons um, now to help other people with her project, the Breakthrough Project. She's a super exciting lady uh, with lots and lots to offer. Um, certainly helped me chatting with her. So. Let's crack it on. Let's do it. Without further ado, episode number three of Chew the Chat podcast with Miss Amanda Wanowski. Welcome to Chew the Chat podcast. I'm dipping my toe, toe into veganery, <laughs> like January, like okay. going all in. And have you done uh, it before? I kind of, I have, and I, I'd like to say I have, but it wasn't intentional. It was like things like stuff, different protein sources were just being cut out, um, and it just it came it came about because I was so poor as a student, <laughs> so I just ended up eating vegetables and rice and pasta while I was training for rowing and I was just like I can't afford chicken mince too expensive like and so and I just I've never really been into eggs and then I'm not great with dairy so it was just like it's these things sort of fell out of my diet um so it was unintentional but I would have just said I'm more um but then every now and again I'd have a bit of fish like uh yeah I wish I had more fish I, I wish I ate more fish. It's, uh, I don't miss it. It's just so, we just were like, what is it? We watched the Game Changers. And I was okay, like, yeah. And I did notice over the years, I was like, hmm. What did you make of the Game Changers? Because that's been quite, um, uh, quite polarising. It is and it isn't. I think it's made really well, but they show you evidence, but they don't explain the evidence. So I, I listened to a three-hour podcast between... The chap that yeah, made it, yeah. and uh, Chris Cresser. <clears throat> He's from Melton, isn't he? I think so, yeah. Um, Chris Cresser did a podcast and sort of critiqued the film. And Chris Cresser was, I think, 20 years a vegan and then ended up changing back to sort of being sort of varied diet. Big proponent of plants and vegetables still to this day, but believes that, you know, um, some meat produce that's grass-fed and sort of as, as healthily reared as possible is a good part of your diet yeah and it ended up being this three-hour podcast about the game changer guy sort of 
critiquing his debunking of it and it then didn't become about the film yeah, as such shame, as it became it? about you got this wrong because you'd said it was uh, three and a half teaspoons of peanut butter to a, a slice of hot and it got very kind of I don't, personal and I, I just actually. don't think that's necessarily a friend of mine I was talking to um, Kieran McVitie she's, she's got this she's an excellent advocate for women's cycling and she's got this huge YouTube and she's we've known each other for years and we were both discussing this and she was saying to me I've seen it too and when they showed there's this piece where there's these American footballers that have had um, a meat based meal and then they have and they take a blood sample and they put it through the spinner to look at the blood plasma and then there was and then they have a vegetarian burrito and they show the plasma again and she said you could see that one was like had a thicker viscosity with fat and one didn't what they didn't say and what they didn't show was which one's better for performance they just assumed that people were making the link between the narrowing of the arteries as in um and the the oxygen uptake and the blood like, like things changing within that person against those things but it was an assumption it's not proof and that's mm-hmm. that's what she was saying was going a lot on a lot in that documentary and i i happen to agree with that it was like look these these are the you can have evidence going either way um it's just really for me that it was just it's an interesting program it is really polarizing um but the piece that did move me more was about the eco like our ecosystem our planet and and the impact and if i if i can reduce in my household that and that is something that happens lifelong I, I would I would feel like I am I am making a step in the right direction for protecting our planet, which is ultimately my only mm-hmm. everlasting home. It's going to be my children's home. I have to become more aware about these things. It's not just about taking care of me. And certainly what I've learned through everything that I do in my world and in Breakthrough is that when you're empowering individuals to start taking care of their home, their minds, their bodies... And the thoughts that go on in them, they've got more room for the wider problems that we are facing as as a, as a, as, a, as humanity. Well, I tell you what, Amanda, we uh, we're on, <laughs> and I'm going Excellent. to introduce you, Amanda Wanowski. You got it. Yeah. Yes, Amanda Wanowski, and you just mentioned breakthrough there. Yeah. You are founder breakthrough project, which is essentially your therapy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You're a hypnotherapist. That's right. Yeah. And you doing your damnedest as you just mentioned there to help put things on some kind of yeah even understandable it's yeah very yeah it's such a it's been such a massive journey into um what breakthrough has become and it's growing and uh i have the i have a huge journey myself with my own ptsd with uh trauma in the family and kind of how I tried to transmute that so how my life has become a machine for generating change so basically what I was telling myself and I've always told myself is it can't have all just been for nothing so um, breakthrough kind of emerged after I so I'd uh, so I, I got into subconscious hypnotherapy by accident and um, what was actually happening was I had been a manual therapist for a long time and I've always gone to the edges of 
our understanding and I've always looked for the wacky out there courses because what I was finding was when people were on their back and you were treating them, they would get up off the table and they would walk their problem straight back into their body before they'd walked out of the door. And so I was I started to immediately think the answer is not to be laid flat. The answer is to treat in the the position that the person is in difficulty, which is on their feet mostly. And so I started to study like the whole body gait analysis, movement and structures. And that led me towards... And then what happened was I, I did that and that really fired up the way I was working with people's bodies. I was uh, like things were changing for people really, really fast. I wasn't massaging anymore at all. I wasn't doing deep tissue. I was doing much more like mobilization. So the bones were talking to the muscles essentially. So chiropractors would kind of agree with this. Other groups may not think so. I think that that's a really narrow view, full stop. I think mm -hmm. the whole body speaks to the whole body on a completely holographic level. And you can't, you can't ignore one system. You have to understand that they are all communicating. And so I went from there to... I'd, I'd been chasing an injury in myself, which was a, a long-standing Achilles problem that had uh, plagued me when I'd been out in Afghanistan. It had, it had never, it had reduced my ability to be the runner. And that was the way that I, often I used exercise to manage my mental state post-tour. And uh, it was an outlet. So being really physical was this huge outlet for everything that I was containing. And then I got this problem and I couldn't do that anymore. And so I was chasing, I was trying to understand how, to get rid of this pain in my leg, which was consistent. It was for like eight years. Um, and I was on this course where I'd started to study the central nervous system. Um, and so I'd gone further away from movement and was more into how information enters our bodies and how we and what that means for us and how the body reacts to it. It's called, and that's called PDTR. Uh, proprioceptive deep tendon therapy and I did that and I studied the central nervous system and applied kinesiology for two years with a doctor and then what came about in on that course I'm sitting there and this this doctor just says 90% of all of people's maintained problems are emotional I was like yeah can I swear you can do what the fuck you want <laughs> You're fucking joking. <laughs> so I'm doing all this manual therapy and then this guy who's teaching his course, it costs a fucking bomb, mm -hmm. drops one. He's like, it's it's emotion, like emotions are top. And I'm, I'm just sat there like, how, how do you even begin to deal with that? And a lot of the other guys were starting to do like these, these sort of um, eye-based therapies and, uh, and, and one of them was CRT, which is cellular release therapy. And at this time, I was going into London doing this course and I couldn't recognise in myself like the, the level of anxiety, fear. My brain was putting out things like stress-induced vertigo to get me out of London. So I, once I started to not be able to maintain my balance, I had to return home. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that. So and along somewhere far, far, far away, someone might drop a book and I would jump in my chair and that would evoke this huge adrenal response. Now, bear in mind, I was someone that was out on the ground in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. My whole system was lit from coming home 
And although I was maintaining in normal life, my level, my state was high always. It was, and so the part of my brain that would be observing the world for threat was really heightened. Tuned, yeah. And so that was all going on and it was invisible to me. And then, except there was this, there was this noticeable thing around my children and what it was was on a daily basis, I was not remembering what happened the day before. And so, and a fear started to come inside of that because my brain, so what happens to people is if they're really super anxious, they, they're functioning in their long-term memory and their short-term memory isn't as effective because they're working from their experiences to work out what is coming at them. And that, that, in essence, means that the things, the lists of things that go on on a daily basis that aren't routine won't be... Registered. Yes. Mm. Um, and so they're kind of in this sort of survival state. And that's where I was at. I didn't know that because I'd been there for nearly half a decade. And on, so I've got this going on and I have this awareness that I'm only feeling extremes of emotion i'm only present when it's like a birthday or when something absolutely diabolical has happened everything in between numb and so i knew this about myself but it hadn't registered to me that i could possibly have ptsd yeah i was somebody that was out on the ground i was in the operational theaters i had masses of high exposure and that's in afghanistan yeah so uh, yeah so i had all of that and previous to that, I was a child that had experienced a family suicide, but in my 20s. So I then, so I've got all this stuff backed up. Well, I would like to just jump in and yeah. sort of take it back a little Sorry, bit. Sorry, Sam. No, no listen, it. this is why we're here. We are yeah. chewing chat. This is amazing. But I do like to give listeners a little bit of insight background, from, from the background. So if you can kind of snapshot it through okay because so, you mentioned there in your childhood and yeah you know, like I my know childhood from... was my childhood was like it's gonna sound awful but it was it wasn't so my my family my mum was particularly very very nomadic and so we did in the region of like 30 moves through my childhood and this is in the uk yeah yeah and UK. and there was a bit of time out in the caribbean and then back and so that that's not that's good, but not good. I mean, it, I cultivated a ton of skill sets that wouldn't normally be you wouldn't. So being able to get into a group really quickly and establish friendships that are good and lasting quickly, uh, being able to not be too freaked out about change. Um, those things are things that are uh, there's a level of resilience that comes with that type of change. And are um, you, at this point, so when you're moving around, are mum and dad together at this point? My what, my parents were separated officially when I was about, they separated when I was about five. I kind of saw my dad on and off through my life. Um, but he wasn't, he wasn't a major player in my life. But emotionally as a child, I was like, he's God. Of course. Yeah. So yeah. like, it's a, that, that was, that was the thing. And um, so we're moving around. I'm a state kid. I'm growing up in West London. Uh, spending time on some of the more unsavoury estates and one of the roughest ones in West London, which was White City. And um, so life was life was quite chaotic. Mm. Um, so there was things going on for me there. And then 
I like how so my mum had mental health problems the entire my entire childhood. Is it your mum Trinidad? Is yeah. your history? Is it is that your mum? Mum's, yeah. mum's from Trinidad. Yeah. Okay, and, so, you, and your dad was dad you British? Yeah. So my mum was actually part of that Windrush right. generation. So wow. my mum came over mm-hmm. to support the UK nursing. Uh, the, the request that they came and she came and she was a, uh, she wasn't a state registered nurse but she was she nursed in the UK um, and that's what she did and so all of that was going on and she wasn't particularly healthy and life was stable unstable until I was in my teens and kind of what sort of happened then there was this 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 kind of huge crossroads and um, I I was watching my mum regressed and I was starting to just spend more and more time with my friends and we'd moved and we were now um on White City and I wasn't doing particularly well at school I was a total dropout (laughs) and I just I wasn't thriving at school but somewhere along the line I watched (laughs) I watched Rocky and I watched him train and powerful training homage. I know, like mega montage, yes. like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And and I was like, I wonder if I can get strong. And I I started to run and I was running and I was just running around the block. I had like, I was so poor. Like I had this like one pair of shorts, this terrible plastic you jacket. You were rocky. <laughs> <laughs> and we I'd go running around the estate. You never went through the estate, you went around it. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just trained, and then somehow I was I got picked to do something at school, and the the scouts for Thames Valley were there at the school sports day, and they saw me run the fifteen hundred, and they immediately were like, "Please come to the club. We'll give you spikes. Just come, come down." And so I started running, and by the end of that year. I'd, I was representing the school. My 1500s were like good enough for London schools. I was competing. I'd won, like I was in the Air Cadets. I'd broken all their records. And I realised there was a part of me that could do something. And having that physical prowess at that time in my life protected me because then mm, I... Confidence and everything. I started to move into a world. And what I had been doing was um, we were the kings and queens of the bricks. The kids that we all hung about with, were so, we were so tight and we were all coming from these similar sorts of homes. Um, and we all really took care of each other. You were never really alone on the estate. And your friends became family. the family unit that you needed, and there and, and there was that was great, um, but it meant I didn't have I didn't have any sort of like boundaries. So if I wanted to be out, I was out. Being at home was terrible, so I just didn't spend any time there, which meant I didn't do any schoolwork. And it's terrible at this time because you, you, your dad's not there and your mum's so unwell and by this stage in my life as well like my mum my mum had become so unwell and was terrified agoraphobic just about functioning managing to hold on to us and um my dad had died by this stage he'd had cancer when I was 15 and like that was game over you know so and I've got I'm left with this one parent that's just about hanging on to being able to parent at which stage I've I've finished school I leave with one GCSE 
Um, but I'm like a like a flagship for what is possible with sport where I've won absolutely everything that I can. I'm I'm doing five Ks in under twenty minutes. I'm um and it's and I was like so I was winning local races, making money that way, but you never really got much. And then I got I I went to college and I did a sports course and I went to Canalside, which is a charity just up the road. And I was working for I was doing my like a an apprenticeship, I suppose it would be now, with Kensington Sports Development, but it was in a building that was run by the charity. And I walked across the corridor and said how do I how do I become a kayaking instructor? How do I do that down there that all those people are doing? And they said, just come and volunteer. At which point I was like, okay. And I did it and I loved it. And immediately I was rewarded for my enthusiasm and I was given kit, I was given training opportunities, I was given a job and qualifications. I would just like to point out if there's young people listening, that seems to be such a common a common narrative with people you, you mentioned like, you left with one GCSE our culture tells us you must educate and educate and educate which you know there's lots of arguments to say yeah that's great but motivation sometimes trumps education and and by by offering your enthusiasm yeah I will volunteer I want to be in this environment that is just recognised by the structure above you and that energy that you bring it opens doors it was it was an absolutely life-changing intervention because what happened was i entered that place which was a very safe place and they were cultivating it was like a family um this outdoor center was extraordinary it had been built for the residents of west london it was the first purpose-built outdoor disabled accessible water sports center in in West London, in London, I think. And we were providing activities for anyone. Anyone could show up, anyone with any level of disability, anyone. And we would take we would take kids that were quadriplegic on the water. There was no boundary and it was combined sessions as well. So everyone went out together. So it was it was this crazy gaggle of uh energy and it really was one of those situations where there was a talent hub that was being created. I didn't realise that until 20 years down the line and kids from West London had become... These were kids that I saw every year for some uh, for five years in the summer, had become vets, were on their way through legal school, were self-employed. And there was just something about that group of children and them all being together that sparked this type... These kids are doing extraordinary things yeah. now in, their adult, in, in their adult lives. Mm. Um, and it... It, it makes me so proud to think that I was involved with them at that stage in their lives where they were growing up in a place where there was regular stabbings, there was muggings, there was there was this huge economical gap mm. between wealth and poverty. And that was there and I trained there and then like the, the deal was I could only work there if I went back to college and got maths and English. They were like, we'll employ you, but you have to go to do that. And I was like, okay. And along the way, I decided that I wanted to move to Sheffield and climb up there and get in the outdoors up there and do an outdoor education course. So I spent two years working with them permanently. Did you do the maths and English? Yeah. Uh, yes, I did. The maths I actually finished in Sheffield. I chinned that off, but I got my English and I got all the other things. So I was gradually like accruing these qualifications. But 
at 17, I was earning money. I was able to support myself and I'd saved about £3,000. At 17? Yeah. Wow. And like, Amazing. So, and that was enough to get me up to Sheffield, pay for myself. And then, and what was happening in that time for me? Can I just ask you, where's this drive coming from, do you think? I, the, the Rocky, the Rocky. I don't, I think I was just so fortunate that there were people around me that were saying, you are are capable of more. Yes, you can. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't pressured home. It was just like you can live, you can have fun, you can do this. And, and is this coming from mum and dad? Where, where? No, it, well, I, by which time? I mean, this is what I was like. By which time? By the time I hit Canal Side, I, I was in foster care. I was. I'd been removed from. So your dad's passed away. Your mum's just struggling. Like, yeah, completely. Like, and is is, what is, is she struggling? Is it mentally? There was Substance, so many things it? going on. So mm. there was a, and like my my brother was in the house, and he was younger than me, but he was huge, and he was really strong, and he was quite violent. And so she was having to manage that. He wasn't wanting to go to school. So the big problem that was cultivated from that was she couldn't make him go to school. At which point, social services were very much like, "What is going on here?" And they, and then they approached me at college, and I was just like, you know, just about to turn sixteen, and like told the truth about everything at which point they just in they came and they were like I I actually got put into foster the day after my birthday he was forcibly removed so all this stuff is going on around me and all I'm clinging on to is the fact that I can run that was all that was the thing that kind of it protected me and then there was the there was this other really beautiful intervention in that I'd gone to college to do a sports course and there was this teacher and I can't for the life of me remember her name and for me to pass English, I needed to be interested in it. And she said to me, Amanda, how is your reading? And I was like, I struggle a bit. And I thought I was dyslexic, thought being the really important word here. Um, I And she gave me Nick Hornby's fever pitch and I'd been playing loads of football. And so I was reading material I could relate to and understand the excitement in the games and that way of going to the matches and what all that all felt like. And that book cemented my interest in reading it, it because there was something relatable in it. And I think that's so important in education now is that the stuff that you're introducing to your kids needs to inspire them in some way. Mm -hmm. It needs to be relatable. Totally agree, yeah. And that... All of a sudden, my I was edging forward in my reading, English was improving, and that, again, I started to understand a bit more about myself. And it wasn't until much later, much further down the line, like 20 years, where when my brain relinquished its hold in terms of fear, and I started to access these higher states and better ways of being... I, I I learned to I was able to do things like um, speed read. I learned speed read, and then I I read something like fourteen books in a month. I was able to go into a heightened learning state where everything I learned I remembered You're just and was super repeatable. immersed in it. It just it was what happened was instead of there being something that blocked stuff, I was accessing all these parts of my mind were inhibited by a, a cycle of um, the fear, fear system being so heightened and active. And 
once I learned that, I was like, oh, God, this is repeatable. I'm absolutely not dyslexic. It's just something I've been telling myself. Look what you can do. And there are times where if you go on, like, where I've got stuff published or there's videos or there might be a grammar error, but the content is more important and the message than where a comma sits. And that's so important for other people to understand. 100%. Uh, So so I'm at school. I'm now in foster care. This this amazing charity has, like, taken me in and is trying to give me foundations that I can work from. And that happens. And I move up to Sheffield. And I'm this kid that has left school with one GCSE, is uh, trying to make enough money to survive. I haven't got any A-levels. I'm doing this outdoor course. And then I decide... (laughs) I'm kayaking. That was the other thing that happened. Within uh, these three years that I was down in London, I took up whitewater kayaking. And then I became like the London Southeast champion. I was on whitewater river. So I'd gone from estates into this very middle, like this kind of an area of sport that wouldn't normally be accessible to Mm -hmm. a kid like me. Mm -hmm. And I had this terrible little rickety boat. It cost me 50 quid. I was having to tape it together with duct tape. And I was winning races. I was beating people that were like in like thousand pound boats. And so I caught the attention of a few people and I was I was going up through the um, divisions really rapidly, just flying up through them. And um, I so then I ended up with a bit of sponsorship. Someone bought me a boat. I had that boat for about five fucking minutes. Like I was going to say, what would it like going from your kind of to an absolute patchwork? Well, boat to a, so in full Amanda spirit, it was like I got my boat first outing. I was like, the Thames is in flood. Let's fucking go! And so me and some mates drive up. We're up at Shefferton Weir, and it is absolutely it's fucking stonking. It's disgusting, <laughs> and we're just like, Woo, let's go, let's get in there. And like we're good, we're all over it, but. This there's this guy called Dave who really isn't and we're just like who brought Dave and so we're doing all these great crosses and it's pounding and it's like good for training and Dave comes out of his boat and it's just like you've got to have each other's backs in situations like that and it was in flood like we'd gone out there knowing full well it was going to be pumping back where is there any law no you can get on it's just like it's your choice but if you cock it up like be ready and Dave comes out of his boat. I'm 57 kilos wet through in my kayak. And there's this bigger man and he's got his kayak and they cost some money and he just doesn't. I'm like paddling. Everything is happening so fast. Normally it would take so long to get to the pontoons. And it's just like, I'm like screaming, Dave, let go of your boat. I can't paddle. Like, and he's like, no, I'm just like, please, dude, like throw me a bone. And I'm like, and he doesn't. And the next thing, there's just this, like, boom. And I'm, like, I look, and I'm right next to the pontoons. Like, this is death. Like, normally, like, there'd be, like, a good bit of breath, like, zone. I'm sitting there, and I can hear my brand-new boat. Like, the best thing I've ever been given in my life. (laughs) It's crunching. Like, and I'm in it, and I just know if I go under... It's bad juju because there's no breath. There's metal work. The water's going to press you up against stuff. What happens when you get pinned is you don't go up. You go down. So the current drives you further down and you just get crushed. And, you know, this is a weir that is absolutely thumping out thousands of pounds worth of water. And I'm sitting there. 
like, fuck. Making me sweat. Dave, Dave, Dave. Oh, fucking Dave. Fucking Dave. Dave <laughs> jumps on my boat. Someone's on the pontoon, grabs him. He steps on my boat. And he, as he steps off, he kicks me into the water, right? So he flips me over. Like, save yourself. Like, and over I go. And I'm upside down. I can just hear myself being buffeted against this metal, like boom, boom. And I'm just, there was this moment. I used to wear like this racing deck and it was, I couldn't get it off. Racing deck, give us a sort of... So it's near premium. It's got this really thick elastic, goes round the lip of the... Ah, the, 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 So I'm locked into this kayak, this solemn kayak. And the reason it was like that was because sometimes you just didn't want to kick it off because you'd get water in. But I never swam. I just didn't. So I was confident that I'd never get need to take it off in an emergency. Except I'm upside down. It's Thames. And I'm like, my boat is crunching. And I'd named that boat, which was really weird, that I'd picked this name out. I flipped over and my deck was open. And I got out and this hand just shot in and underneath the the pontoon and reached back for me. And it was one of my friends. And it I just wasn't caught, Dave. It wasn't Dave. He's gone. What did you name your boat, by the way? It was called Gabriel. Ugh. Right. And I, this hand arrives and I grab it and I can just feel my friend like gripping me, like going, come on, man, come on. And he pulled me out and he was just like, not today. And mm. he just, he, he grabbed me out and he was like, well done, mate. And... My boat has disappeared. I can hear it getting smashed to pieces underneath the pontoon. I am sweating right now. And there was this really mad thing about this because I could never have afforded that boat and I could have been raised, I could have been in that situation in my 50 quid taped together and I would have been Mm -hmm. and I would have still done the rescue, but the boat would not have given me the time. So the time in which I was upside down, my other boat would have collapsed. And this boat didn't only do that. My deck was already popped and off. And it was just it was just like this synchronous moment where it was like I was given something that actually protected me more than I realised through the fact that the funding had come. The whole thing about that was nuts. I never knew where that money had come from. But someone was like, Amanda, someone's funded a boat for you. Um, And it, it got smashed up. So we managed to fish it out. And we looked at the hole, and I was like, first outing, but it was patchable, so I still kept that First boat. outing? Yes. This was the first outing. <laughs> the first time I've oh, been man. out in that boat. I know, it's like taking out your, like... Who are you not looking forward to telling about that? It's like, oh, oh, God. Mind you, I guess yeah. you're alive. So. Yeah, so, and it did, it just really, it didn't change, it was just that confidence of youth that you go out and you mm. do that. That was what, Fearless, yeah. like, to... To, and you didn't need that to progress, but it was exciting when the water was pumping like that. And I've always had that streak of that was something that's been in me since childhood in London was like this adrenaline chasing junkie. And mm-hmm. so that that had come. And then I moved up to Sheffield and weirdly I had got into rowing. Sorry. And um, just punched the mic. Yeah. Why not? Full swing. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then. I, I put down my kayak. I, uh, I'd had a chance to go to England Development, but I'd started up this story in my head that I was too, I'd was i come into the sport too late 
and I was never really going to progress where you'd want to be in yeah your mind. and so but what I'd actually done is fearfully talked myself out of development oh, okay but a lot of the girls that were ahead of me were spending a lot of time in Europe and they were following a much higher racing circuit and I just couldn't work my head into how do I do that when I don't have a home how do I how do I stretch to being able to follow that life when I don't even have somebody to come back to like I'm paying for all of this so I move up to Sheffield and I take up rowing and I'm living this life where I'm just turning 18 I'm cycling to college which is a couple of miles across Sheffield and I'm um, like I'm, I'm working nights at a nightclub and then getting up at five in the morning to make the the outings and so I would regularly be on the water asleep <laughs> while people were warming up in the back in the front of the boat and then and I was doing that and I did that and so I was living this life where I was making and working nights at nightclubs I loved because I loved electric dance music and it meant I could access it and I wasn't having to pay for it. Were you doing any partying? You, you know, were you intoxicated in any way? I, I, there was a period of that, but I stopped it because I had aspirations to go further in my So your sport. discipline, even in your circumstances and where you're pulling this from, I don't know, but you've got this... You've got this discipline ethic, haven't you? Work ethic that somehow is pulling you through. Some it seemed to just it's and I I had harboured this hope that I would get good enough to potentially like progress in rowing. And I'm a lightweight. I'm fucking short. So like I had to maintain a particular weight. And like it's and I'm not at all lightweight. So that it was like it was a bit of a fight. And honestly, I openly can say it. Rowing is the fucking hands down hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And people that maintain and do it for years, I have got so much respect for because it is hard. And I loved it. And what I was doing every day, this is the kid that grew up on some of the roughest estates in West London, was just surrounded by like concrete jungle. I spent as many days as I could on this reservoir in Sheffield, which was two kilometres long, rowing. And it was just so... Even if I didn't get to where I might have liked to have gone... There was something really cathartic about mm, that. Calming and, and still. And this, like, so there's this journey and I'm living in Sheffield and I start seeing this guy and I, like, I'm there and I spent five years there and there's this moment where I <laughs> I had this argument with my maths teacher. I still didn't have maths and I'm in this class and this guy's teaching us about probability and I just look at him and I was like, you gamble a lot, don't you? It just came out of my mouth. And he just looked at me. He was like, get out. (laughs) I was like, like, I pissed off my maths teacher so much. It's the one thing I needed to go to uni. And he's like, you can't come in anymore. So where did that come from? What made you say that? Is that just an instinct that just overwhelmed you? He was so enthused about this probability stuff. It was the first time I'd seen him lit up in this maths class. And I just clocked it. I was just like, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. And I just, I don't, it just poured out of my mouth. And without sort of fast forwarding, your natural ability to use awareness, sensitivity, which is obviously a massive part of what you do now. I had no Is that like the first kind of, are you sort of I, thinking, whoa, fucking hell. I, I didn't really. I was totally oblivious to that mm. back then. And now, 
now that that's such a powerful instrument for me to like my eq is absolutely I, i'm gonna i'm gonna say it's through the roof mm-hmm. in what i can observe in in someone and out someone else uh what they're doing what they're doing with the language what they're doing with their body language how they're breathing their moving profile how much of that is your instinct and intrinsic to you and how much of it is education reading learning i think it's a combination but i also think when you spent such a long time in a state of heightened observation you have trained your mind in yeah. a particular way to yeah. take in details Just by, by design of yeah. yeah so traumatic childhood difficult parenting growing up on an estate moving to environments of fear except i was absolutely Seeking in my yeah. element yeah. like adrenaline made me feel alive so what i can understand from that is that along the way i became dissociated and that was my outlet of feeling it's not the right one but it was one mm. and then and i cultivated that further and then you know there's this history of me then going to war boots on the ground in afghanistan and what does that then do to a person so, how, so when you leave sheffield you've done five years in sheffield <laughs> I do, yeah and then i go in how old are you now i'm in my I early left, 20s yeah i'm in my early 20s and i got this i got a sales job immediately out of uni so what happened I, I went, I got chucked out of maths. I just went and got all the revision manuals and digested them and taught, self-taught. And where I was struggling, I asked a few people, can you help me? And I passed that. I'd scraped a few A-levels. And then I begged Sheffield Hallam to let me in. I'd already been rowing for them for two years. It wasn't really a thing, but I was established in the university. My first year at uni, I was vice captain of the rowing club. Oh, wow. <laughs> and like so a yeah. fresher in charge it was like everyone's like what's going on here but it's like I've been here for two years already mm-hmm. I know what's going on um, and it was but it was it was a, it was development it was still development and um, and then I went and did sports management at Sheffield Hallam and uh, I kind of along the way in there got fascinated by consumer behaviour and why people buy why people behave a particular way and what really it really helped me because I'd wanted this is I think this is the this is the street kid in me where I don't have money but I've got to utilise some leverage to get what I want. And so I walk into J. E. James and Which is, that's a vital fucking skill, I think. Like I've got this, I'm doing this consumer behaviour thing and I walk around the shop and I I basically go you're missing sales here, 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 and here. Let me write you something. And I go back into the shop and I was like, you need to, for, for guys, they don't really mind, but if women are coming in, they need to see everything tagged and priced. You want people to walk from here to here and go this way. You want to create a one-way route so people have to walk around and see. It takes people a bit more time, but they'll start to browse, slow them down at the front door, all this sort of stuff. And they were like, and I was like, and what they did in return for that, there was this bike frame I couldn't afford. I couldn't have it and they gave it to me for 600 pounds and like it was it was at that time it was the team telecom uh giant uh tcr frame that had just been in the sort of france and they were just and it was a small they couldn't sell it so there was like this thing of like we can it's an exchange it's a bit like when you were young and you were like i'll volunteer you know that energy that, that that commitment that just motivation to achieve is being paid back in and so yeah and so i end up with the bike of my dreams and that kind of it was a breakup bike I'd come through this horrendous breakup and that that bike arrived in my life as I became homeless (laughs) but I know like fucking five-year breakup homeless 
my um then what had happened i like yeah i'd been with this guy for ages i broke up I, we'd, he bought what was a house. relationship like with the guy was it, it was, was it it was absolutely amazing to be in with and i cannot be anything but grateful for him to have had the courage to be like we don't work um, because I, at that time, was so fucking loyal to this the ideas of what it is yeah. instead of the relationship. Yeah, committed to somebody. Because that's that is that's a that's an age thing. That's an understanding thing. That's a knowing yourself thing. And I I wasn't in that place. And so, for all the courage it took him to do that, and and the, uh, the awfulness of it all. So were you really upset? I guess a little bit. You know, like yes, heartbroken. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Turbo and mm. like. But also, stability-wise, I've gone and I've become homeless again. So there were two times in my childhood where that happened. Boom, three, homeless, one bag. And um, it wasn't his fault. It just is what it is. Mm. Um, and then by that December, my mum had committed suicide. Oh, <laughs> I know. So 2005 was just like... <laughs> I had how met... Were you, how were you and your mum in that lead-up? How did you manage to maintain a relationship? No, the, like... The bond sort of... No, and this is, I mean, this is the tragedy in all of this, is that I didn't understand mental health and I was trying to cultivate a life for myself. And in my little head, I had said, once I make a success out of myself, I can go home with some money and start taking care of what's going on. Total sense, yeah. Except I'm sort of in that zone of being like in my young 20s and trying to survive and do what I need to do. And I cannot bear or handle the story at home. So I stayed away. And so there's this this kind of like this painful tragedy for me in that we didn't talk for five years. And then, At all? No. And then the next phone call I get is from a relation. And this is in the days before she can yeah. sort of voyeur yeah. through a, a, exactly. some kind of social there's media. N- yeah, there's nothing. Just blank, just It void. was just like I was, mm, I was out in the universe somewhere. Mm. And so my mum had nowhere, no idea where I was, what I was doing when she decided to... And was she to, upset? Was she aware of... The impact of the dynamic that she was struggling with herself on I, you, on on your brother and stuff. I honestly, I don't know. Uh, I can't say that I know. What I can, all I, all I can ascertain from it is that she had reached a state of being so unwell. She'd been sectioned that it just really, it it had it was a it was a choice that she made, and. Like suicide and those behaviours, they're badly understood in society. We're afraid to talk about it. Mm -hmm. We don't know what to do when people start demonstrating behaviours. And it's still such a taboo. And the sooner people get on board with talking about anything that makes them uncomfortable the sooner we have got a chance to get early intervention. And I'm talking, like, anything, anything where there is fear, there is opportunity for things to be hidden. And and it's just so much easier with life if people bring that out front. And it's hard because it takes courage. It's like the acute pain to, to actually express it and let's put it on the table or the chronic thing yeah. we try and put under the rug that and it's so us. and it's so hard and like this winter this December has been there's been so many young men that I've heard about this December this as we are now yeah, 2019 Link, Lincoln has been it's this has been it's been high, like I'm hearing more and I have to check in with myself I'm like am I hearing more because I'm somebody that has experienced this as a trauma and I'm more likely to be alert to it 
And I would say this year I'm not. It is just it's prevalent. It's prevalent in that somehow this is happening more regularly and we're not we're not able to access these individuals and provide them with the support that they need. Now, my mum's journey was decades and and that's so very different to a 19-year-old young man who has this or a teenager or even an under 10. It's unbearable, isn't it? Mm. It's unbearable, mm. but it's happening. Mm. And there are like and so so this is all going on in my life. And I, I'm, I've met this incredible divine light, which was my husband for a decade. And he is absolutely the divine, femi- uh, divine masculine in my world. He, but we're not together anymore. And I couldn't wish for a better male um, sort of pillar for, for my children. And I'm so very lucky. And you've got two children, right? Yeah, Leo and Matilda. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so he's come into my world, and Pete, by all instant, intense purposes, his name means rock. So where we are, you're, have you left Sheffield? Nearly. So I disappear off, and I go into the outdoor industry for a couple of years, and I work in North Wales. I work at the National Centre of Excellence, and I have an absolute blast over there. I spend some time down in Cornwall climbing and picking up qualifications and running the dart every day for the whole winter. And I live at a place called Chicks, which is a children inner city holidays for children's kids uh, chicks children's holidays for inner city kids amazing organization can't give them enough love and um i just i'm just ramping my outdoor prowess and having a really good life because that's that was something that was just really grounding for me but there's no money unless you go into power so if you're involved in boating or power boating then you can just you know mm-hmm. line your pockets mm-hmm. Except I didn't. I wanted to climb. I wanted to kayak. I was sailing. Kite surfing came in a bit later on, and um, and then I just like there's this thing that's got into me. This belief that I need a grown up job, and a lot of that I think came from my the relationship I'd come out of, which was a lot of it was you're not doing something that's grown up. It's not going to get your mortgage. It's not going to do this or that. And so I'm like, hmm, what can I do? And I kind of come up with two. I'm either like become a midwife <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. or or someone. And so I'm going down this road of like chasing midwifery and Sheffield Hallam opens up a course. There's something like there's something like 27 places, no, 15 places. They have 15 places for applicants. And I start going through the motions of trying to read all the literature. So you're in full Amanda Gusto. Yeah, mode. Yeah. And they, 1,500 applicants. For I was 15 places. places. And I was second phone call. Wow. And I, I'd, so I'd got, and I'd cultivated, a, I really was, and they were like, we, you can come and train as a midwife. So it doesn't get much more grown up than that in my head. Mm-hmm. And, but there was this thing where I was like, you, if you're going to go and deliver babies, man, you've got to be 100%. You can't be 98%. And there was just this niggle in me that it wasn't the right move. I don't know why, but that was there. And someone, it was actually Pete said to me, you do realise you, you can be an operating department practitioner in the armed forces. I was like, what's that? And Pete, you, so Pete is, is the, your husband? Yeah, my ex-husband, but like, and the most incredible man. And I how, have, how do you meet Pete? How did I meet Pete? I met, <laughs> <laughs> oh God. So 
Peterborough Regatta, we'd done a really good job of winning. I was completely naked drunk at the eight trailer with the entire crew, also men, not wearing any clothes. I'd, we were all about to go and do a naked eight, and there's this random guy there with no clothes on as well. I'm like, you're not in our crew, but I'm really drunk. We're never going to list this He's boat. just seen you all and thought, fuck it. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll he basically took all his clothes off and joined on. And so, at which point, that, that is how we met. Like, completely naked, nothing to hide. Party time. <laughs> yeah, but we, we became friends. We didn't actually... Uh, do anything for two years we were both with other people and yeah so like how we actually met was wearing absolutely no clothes so you know you do what you do Mm -hmm. and um so we're he's 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 already in the air force he's uh air crew he's on helicopters and he tells me about this job so I, i go down to the avco just walk in there as you do and ask them and they're like it's closed there's no job um, and I'm like, I can't wait another year. I'm already 25. What am I going to do? Like, life is really hard. I'm working for the British Red Cross at this stage. And um, and I'm not coping with it particularly well after everything that my mum's done. And I, so, I work, there's no job. They, you can't, the lines are closed. So basically, they open up jobs in the armed forces and they recruit and fill. Excuse me. And so I'm like, right. And then I get on the internet and I'm like, who is in charge? <laughs> and I start searching for where the military unit hospitals are, who's likely to be the senior person. And I find a phone number and I ring the person myself. I don't let the office do it. I call them and I say, I'm a graduate. I've been working for the British Red Cross. So I have everything you're looking for. Can you interview me? And they say, we're going to call the AVCO. Can you be ready next week? And so I, what was closed by the government, I made a doorway. Well, this is your gusto again, you know. Cue the rocky, here we <laughs> fucking go. You know, like, and, you're making it happen, aren't you? And so they reopened the line. And I went, I was interviewed, and I got something called a board score six, which is rarely given out for an interviewee. And, um, and then I was, by April, I was going through basic training into a, a role, which is called the Operating Department Practitioner, which is um, to support operating theatres at the field hospitals. And um, so there was a two-year training cycle with that. And then after that, I was, you know, ready for deployment. And so that's what happened it was just like boom. I was like in the space of six months I'd gone through all of that and then I joined the armed forces and then said let's go to war uh, probably retrospectively not the best thing to do however being in the air force was was the first time at that stage where I had stability I had a great income I was being trained to be a what I was I was being paid loads of money to trade to become what I became there was a group of us, so there was just like this sisterhood that I became part of, and some of my best friends, and we've all been through so much together, babies, marriages, now, you know, endings mm-hmm. of marriages, going to war, coming back, supporting one another, like, this this kind of, like, family bond, and we were all away from the things that we loved, but we were doing it together, so there was just this, there's this type of That's deep, deep friendship deep. that yeah. is just going to last life you know so long and we all we we go back and come back together and that was so vital for me because it was the first time I really outside of a sporting arena Mm -hmm. I had it in in 
abundance. And we worked at Peterborough District Hospital, some of us, some of us were at Birmingham, and then we were like put on these deployed roles. And so that's all going on. And then eventually, like, and we go, we go, we, I go to Afghanistan, and it's this. How do you feel when you're making your way through the air to, to an, a war zone for the first time? Oh, so fucking shit scared. Like, even though you're prepared, I was prepared. Like, as, even though I was prepared, I didn't know what to expect. Mm. And I've got my headphones on, I'm on the back of this big aeroplane. Like, Listening to Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> well, it, do you know what? It was so funny. It was on my, my iPhone was on, my, my, I didn't have an iPhone, I had my pods. Like, do you remember iPods? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah, the, it, was on, yeah. it was on shuffle and like it just rolled into like this Rolling Stones, like Vietnam song. I was like, no, like as the things like, coming down was it like give me shelter yeah it was oh wow <laughs> so like this thing's dropping and like there's just like this oh, oh it's a movie scene disgusting heat just hits the back of the aeroplane mm. and it was just and you walk off and it's not quite like what you like there's a holding area that you go into and like you're there and you've got all like you pick up like you arrive and you're given your kit you were it's given to you and like you we didn't have our weapons immediately so we're pr- literally processed through and it's just really bright there's just tents everywhere and everyone's in uniform and it's so fucking hot close yeah and it? like yeah. Ho- like so hot the hairs in your nose are like disintegrating mm. And you and I knew because I'd be moving between the field hospital and my tent. I was never going to get used to it because it's air conditioned in the hospital. And it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't physically dangerous in Bastion for us at the time we were there. It got that way, um, but because we were front of house in ED and then in operating theatres, our exposure mm. was just continuous 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 and it's not all bad though like I, I i can say that from my point of view is that i experienced like i was deployed with the leading um trauma center in the world at the time how much of your training was incorporating the i guess the pre-trauma uh, ability to to cope. How much? How much of the training was based on? Look, we, you're going to be exposed to things that are going to be. We they did this really. So well, they spent pretty much two years getting us ready. So they did loads of stuff around human factors like communication. We were starting to look at body language, followership, leadership. We had this amazing guy out on the ground called Mark Laurent who was observing all of us, and I immediately became really interested in what he was doing. He was from Cambridge and he was an ethnographer. And so I had like a million, whenever I could, I was asking Mark about what he was doing, why he was doing it. And he was exploring teamwork in these environments because it it, it goes beyond. And you start to see like this collective machine working. And it's because the stakes are so high. Somebody comes in and they're in that hour of what you do is going to determine the outcome of whether they live or die. And so everyone, we got to a stage where we were working in, there'd be like 15 of us around a person and we were working in near silence, but everyone was moving. Nobody bumped into each other. Everyone knew what to ask for, how to move. And nobody upset the person next to them when we were in flow. 
And that was most of the time. And there were occasions where what I've realised looking back is that even at the top level of hierarchy, coping strategies to what you were exposed to weren't, they weren't always the best, but they were what the best the individual could come up with at the time. And so how, like, we were really heavily, like, we did so many exercises. They built this huge area up in York where you would go and they had mapped out the entire field hospital. So when you got on the ground, when you walked in, you knew if I turned left, I'd be in ED. Or if I walked down there about 50 metres, I'd be in the wards. So they were trying to create, like, to speed up our taking over from the team that were going home because it would be an entire field hospital almost changed, like 250 personal, boom, like over, hell, in a week. Literally yeah. a military operation. Yeah, literally. and like quite, and there was there was this resilience hospital that was set back, so there was supplies that was all tented, and so there was there was so many things that were being we were being groomed essentially to be able to go and take over, and. And there were different things. Like I went with the Navy, which was amazing. I didn't deploy with the Army, which probably wouldn't have worked out so well for me because um, I'm a bit chopsy. <laughs> so like the Navy are a bit more chilled out and everyone knows that. Um, so it was just it was just this really mad time. And you did your best to take care of your friends. So my best friend was deployed before me and I arrived. We hadn't seen each other for three months and I just, and this is that thing about body language. I took, well, I, I arrived and she'd, they'd moved into the resilience, so the moving out accommodation. And she'd made my bed and she'd gone round and everything that she had. So I had her pillow, I had her mattress. Those things, not everyone got those things. I had a place to put all my stuff. And she bought me a glow in a dark, she bought me Wally, Disney Wally glow in the dark bedding because she knew I'd be coming back in in the dark and I'd need to be able to see my bed space. Amazing. Because, um, yeah, so my best friend set me up with all this stuff and I didn't realise how important it was until she was gone and I was looking around and my, some of my potties, my roommates, didn't have those things. And I I looked at her in the face, I kind of, I just went, how's it been? And she just gave me one look and I just felt like this cold feeling run through me like, oh God. This is hell. Fuck is bad and because we were so close we'd always had that ability to kind of and and it was like okay she needs to go now she needs to get back to her family and she so there was a week and it's a really funny time because you're there with your friends you're really excited to see them and you're doing all this new crazy stuff and at the same time they've got to leave you and you've got to stay. Yeah, they've been through that cycle. Yeah, and they're ready to go home. And you're so ready to leave that place. Um, and then and then it just, it's Groundhog Day. Like, the, the weather's the same, the food's the same, the casualties are different. And so, because it was the middle of the summer, like, nothing really changes apart from the heat. And, um, and so all you do is I was on like this 18 hour cycle of you'd go in in the morning until 12. You might get a couple hours off and then come back at six. So you'd either get some sleep, come back at six, work the evening. And if you'd either finish, if there was nothing coming in at whatever time, once everything was shut down, or you'd work until the work stopped, which could be eight o'clock the next morning when the next team came in. And then you'd go to sleep until 12 and it was just this. So we were, 
cycling through and then some days we were hit so hard there was no who are you treating everyone so children locals military it was at the time when i was there it was everybody so was there a predominant dominance so we had obviously we were taking military casualties uh isaf like we were and we were taking you know and insurgents as well so we were eye to eye with very dangerous people um you know i I looked at one i was looking face to face in one of the most prolific bomb builders of that period that person had and you're trying to keep him alive yeah, and it's a conflict because mm. you're then you're in your head knowing you're a medic and that you've got to be like this, but then you know down the way those people have died because of him, and and it's just like it was so di- it was difficult, oh, yeah. like Absolutely, and yeah. you have thoughts like I came away with so much I didn't realise until years later when I went on like a psychedelic retreat how much hate I'd been harbouring for that whole experience because it came up in its full colourful way. And it was because I needed to understand within myself that I needed to let go of that distaste for the, the what had been done to humanity and what what I'd observed. And it was just this full um, abomination of life. And I I found that so I'm I would call myself like a super empath, mm-hmm. and to have observed that. Yeah, and I then, mean, that's the epitome of the darkest elements of ourselves, isn't it? It was, and and the hard pieces that no one could get you ready for were the children, like at all. Nothing could prepare you for that. But at the same time, the kids out there are so fucking hard. Like this kid came in, he'd had his ass blown off, like he was missing a chunk, and we didn't know. And so we're in the ED bit. I'm talking to this kid in Pashtun because I learnt a bit out there. And then he's come through to theatres and we take the dressing down and I just put it back on and I just said, put him to sleep now. And the dog was like, why? And I said, it's not a scratch. How old is he? He he must have been about 12. And he was sitting there chatting to me. Just, and I was like, they're tough out there because they have like, it's not a good thing, but they have just a very different life. And this kid, I was like, how is he not feeling that? It was just... Mm. Um, there was, you know, there, there was mad things that happened out there. Like, um, there was this day where, like, you just, you weren't, your head just, you were in this other world and you were living in, I was, I'm saying you, you weren't there. Mm. I was living in this, like, um, adrenaline bubble for months. And so when I did finally come home. You'd been seeking that your whole time as well. Yeah, in but some way you, or another. Yeah, but then you do it for. It's, that amount of time. Yeah. There's, well, depletion there's, to your system. There was depletion, but it's a high. So imagine what happens to your life, even though you're in like this terrifying environment where you're kind of in it, it's heightened, everyone's in it. There's this communal thing going on where there's and and we're all working together and you're experiencing what is the ultimate in teamwork and um and it really was like throughout the hospital it was extraordinary what was going on and it was international and and then you come home and you're totally on your own and you've left your friends out there and you're you know that other people this is all going on but you're just walking through your door and you're going to make a cup of tea so you're angry you get back i was fiercely angry that i had to i could like it wasn't closed and 
um, and that I was leaving. I felt terrible that I was leaving the guys out there. And um, you come back and and you've gone through all of this stuff and you've been through these searing highs and then nothing. And your purpose for living has just stopped. Where are you at? That seems to be, and it's not, I mean, it's in no way am I comparing it in any way, but when you listen to rock stars, sports stars, that level of yeah. infused energy and... It's palpable. You can, it is the most, it's such, it was such an honour to be part of that. And I have seen that in the NHS. I have seen that in the UK when someone comes in with something catastrophic and the wheels just start to move mm-hmm. to save this person. Mm-hmm. You see these heightened flow states and my God, that is my jam. I absolutely love that stuff. So I'm I'm always going to be, like because of these things, because of the sport, because of the deployment, because of the teamwork, because of these things, like what happens is if someone has been in massive trauma, they've created changes in their brain, don't for a second think they're not positive ones. Because there's this opportunity for this person to grow in such enormous ways and that they can access these flow states easier than someone that hasn't been through these traumatic experiences. It's just no one's teaching them. And that's that's the beauty of understanding like the resilience in humans. So as we move further towards where you are now as a hypnotherapist, obviously having yeah. the benefit now of listening to your story <laughs> to this point. Right. How are you sort of harnessing it? How many? How long do you stay in Afghanistan? How long do you stay in the military? How so long? I, I was, I kind of came home. I was unaware of like what I was containing. I wasn't happy in the armed forces anymore. I was very, I was very anxious. I couldn't get anything right at work. I felt like I was being observed. So there was this internal story that was building up of just not being able to get things right. And I was just, I was, un, I was told I was underperforming at work. I didn't agree with that because there'd been, like, I'd got my report and then I was like, well, hang on a minute. The day before I, was, I pretty much stopped surgeon from doing something absolutely heinous to a patient. I'm not underconfident. This isn't matching up. But I couldn't stand up for myself. And so there was this anxious profile. You couldn't stand up for yourself due to what, your own energy levels or the structure to, of power? To, to, to what was essentially everyone surviving in a system. Now, bear in mind, all my peers had also been, and all my hierarchy had also been deployed, and everyone was trying to work inside a system. Mm-hmm. And so, like, reflect, like, reflecting now, I can see we were all trying to survive <laughs> in, inside of what we were doing. And... I wasn't doing well and I just reached a point where I got this report and I left work and I was driving my car and it spun off the road and what I hadn't realised was I was so angry I was driving at about 90 miles an hour on a country road and I lost control of my golf and it just spun and I was facing a tree <coughs> and I just thought close call fuck and I picked up the phone I didn't even know I was doing it you know someone else could have been hurt and I just rang the med centre and said look I, I need to come in I'm not right and I immediately got triaged. And what I did, instead of going on SSRIs, which I was offered, and that I was assessed, they realised I wasn't a danger to myself. And I said, can I just have two weeks off where I just do exercise? I need this. And they were like, sure. And that was enough to pave the way for me, but not recover, because I wasn't acknowledging that what was actually going on was PTSD. And um, 
At which point I leave, I have my kids, I come out, I just say, look, I'm done. Okay, well, actually, I didn't do that. Were you, true. were you and Pete together? Yeah, so this time? we're going back to back. We <coughs> did about nine tours between Iraq and Afghanistan. Are you, are you ever out there at the same time? That tour, we actually were. So he's out on the helicopters on a daily basis, and I'm hearing in the hospital about them going down and casualties. Fucking hell. So you're not only dealing with what's in front of your nose, you're yeah, thinking it's, like, it's, it's Pete? Exa- yeah. Oh, so, hell. like, there were days where his command, ran up to the hospital and they were like it's not us it's just like Jesus Christ I know like it was it was mental and then we um, so we're doing all this we died I come out but before I come out there's this moment that the Air Force gives me and there had been this order that had come out and they were like does anyone want to do duties at the Olympic Games and I was like oh it's just going to be God why would I want to do that I won't get to watch any of it and I apply for tickets. I don't get any. And I'm raging. I'm like, it's supposed to be sport for all. I hate the Olympics. <laughs> Four fucking bastards. The IOC. I hate you all. Like, I'm so, so upset. Like, total paddy. And then Pete's like, man, look at the, the Pete. Like, write a letter. Look, they're asking for people. So on the last day, I sit there with my laptop and I write about how sport and the RAF has transformed my life. And I just send it. And I write about how I'd wanted to be Kelly Holmes and she inspired me to want to become a PTI, although that's not what I did. That had been the dream. I wanted to become a PTI. And at Holton, someone walked up to me with my portfolio and said, why are you not going to PTI school? And I said, because it was an open, I applied as an OTP. And they were like, we'll make a phone call today. Do you want it? And what I knew was I would not get to the front line. So I said no. And so that childhood dream that I'd had, I kind of allowed it to move on it was just that was a point it was a crossroads again which journey do you want mm-hmm. and I just and so that was and that was the right decision and I so I'm there with this, I'm writing this letter and I just think I'm not going to get selected you know just send it I get into a fuck ton of trouble at work because I do not put it through command and I just send it off for Direct, myself. Right, yeah. Amanda mode. It's just like what you do. I do that. I've realised now, talking to you, I just make, I chase things myself. You're headstrong and that's so, that. And I knew none of my bosses would write the way I could. And so I send in this letter saying how sport has transformed my life. It saved me. Coming to the RAF has given me family and like what it meant to me to be part of the Olympic Games. And I get a phone call, I get an email, and they're like, you've been selected for ceremonial duties. I was like, Brill, go to Portsmouth. So I tell my boss, and she's like, you're you're on standby. And I'm like, I'm always on standby. Um, and I find a way around that, which was the Achilles injury I couldn't get out of. I was like, Mom, I actually can't wear boots. I can wear parade shoes. And she's like... and. I get that verified by the med centre. And so now there is nothing in the way of me being in my number ones at the Olympic Games. I don't know what job I'm going to do. So I turn up, they train, and we're all put into these teams. Um, And I still don't know. And it's two days before the Olympic Games open. And they go, right, they're going through everyone. And they go, they point to one group and they're like you've got shooting you've got swimming you've got cycling and I'm just like everything good's going netball hockey blah 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 and I'm just like what's left and it's like it was like archery (laughs) and something else and I don't know what the something else is and they say someone's got archery and then they go that team over there you're the Olympic Stadium and they're pointing at me 
And I'm like, pardon me, what? You're raising the flags for the whole of the Olympics in the Olympic Stadium. Wow. And so... I'm Which like, means you're right near. The, you're on the track. We basically. were. We had backstage passes to the Olympics and the Paras, all access for eight weeks, and I raised sixty-two flags, silver flag. That's me under the pole. Amazing. And so, how cool! I spent, and so, and we just go down there, and this absolute like <clears throat> when I was a kid, I'd wanted to go to the Olympics. I wanted to be an Olympian. That was that had been the dream. Like sport had coursed through my blood the whole time, and at some point I let go of it. But I'd put the flag up to the universe. I'd said I want to go to the Olympics. I wasn't specific, so what I ended up doing was being part of the Olympic, a part of part of the closing ceremonies, and in it, in my role. And the only way I could have gone was if I had medals. So if I hadn't have deployed to Afghanistan, I wouldn't have had the medals. I couldn't have been there. That was one of the stipulations. And so I'm meeting Usain Bolt. I've got photographs. I'm hanging out. I've, I met Mo Farah. And it was, you know, the big that London. Yeah. And Historical London. Yeah. We, we were just in the thick of it. I was bumping into I mean, I'd name drop there, but everyone was in the stadium. So the first day I see, um, like I see someone and I'm like, oh, my God, it's, I can't even remember who it was now. It was one of the presenters. And I just thought that was it. I'd made it. I was like, oh, I've seen someone famous, like, tick. Mm-hmm. Like, and then, like, there was just this, and then it just snowballed because we were right backstage and we were opposite the green room. Anyone that came to get a medal, we were, we were there. And so I was having, like, the time of my life down in London and I was, I watched everything um, pretty much except Super Saturday. I wasn't there for that day. The other team were. And that was fine. But I went and I saw, whenever I wasn't on duty for the medal ceremonies, I was watching whatever I could. And I was just soaking it up. And there was just these huge experiences, like hearing 80,000 people sing to Mo Farah. And I thought I'd peaked at that point. And then we went into the Paris and Channel 4 took over and the energy was just like London had just dived into this thing. And there were, I was watching uh, like this, everyone, like athletes were doing the most extraordinary things and things were going wrong. Like people were like falling over in like the 400 and they'd get up and the stadium would just light up and like they would cheer so like the energy was profound and i just felt like this a huge sense of pride about this country and it was it was extru- like to have it been in that it did resonate through didn't yeah, it yeah and it but to have been in that to mm, be in the cauldron, the cauldron. It, yeah. and i could just walk down and be on trackside and watch and look up at everybody and just think you know, we're, wow, we there's did a, there's this. A, there's a catharsism for you. You've just come out of representing your country in Afghanistan in a whole different energy field, seeing a darker side yeah, of our right. human existence to then being in in the Olympic Games, which, of course, is a unifying global event. Yeah, and in, I... In London. Yeah, like where I grew up. And then feeling that energy sign kind of heal you to a degree. I it think. was it was extraordinary, and but it was the time where I went, you leave now. Uh. You go home. It's not going to get any better than this, mm-hmm. man. Yeah. You've done it. Like, you can hang up your hat. And 
whatever's going on in you, which I wasn't acknowledging at that time, it's time. It's done. So I went home after the games and I reported to my chain of command and I just said, I'd like to leave. And then my life took this incredible turn because I always had decided, I knew that it would be the right time to start a family. And I had Leo and he was actually born in the hospital where I worked at for nine years. And the team, like he was a complicated delivery and the team that had um, delivered him had been my family for nine years. So in that room were these people that had trained me, developed me, um, brought me on and I couldn't trust more. And there they were holding my hand through a, a traumatic C-section and arriving my son into the world and getting us through it. That's beautiful. And it was so, I was so blessed for that experience. It, I was so lucky, even though it was a hard time. And then, and then, so I'd had Leo and then we moved and I followed Pete. And so this is all going on. And eventually I have Matilda and my things, are, the Achilles is starting to get really bad. And what I now understand with this is this, this was like an antenna for my emotional state. And so the worse it became and the less I could run. And what I kind of understand this to be now is that the perfusion in the Achilles tendon is, isn't great at the best of times. Now, someone that is in shock or like the way that I see anxiety is slow onset of shock because you start to see the same cascade of things happening in the human body. So my Achilles would get really grumbly when my uh, CO2, O2 exchange would become bad because my breathing had changed because I was anxious. I couldn't put that all together back then. Um, and anyway, so it's getting bad. I'm starting, and my dreams stop. I'm living near Bryce Norton. I can hear the the a military aircraft overnight. Pete's away on ops all the time, and I start to have these flashback dreams where my children start showing up behind the wire as well. Whoa! And oh my gosh! I really start to feel like I'm losing it, and I just. I was like, oh, no. And I'm doing PDTR at the same time. I'm kind of developing in this thing. And then there's this thing, isn't it? 90% of all the physical problems are emotional. Enter and Drucker and cellular release therapy from America. And my friend Ian had been trying to get this course in the UK. And he was having trouble filling it. And I just said, I got fired from my first sales job because I was too good. They couldn't pay my bonuses, so they fired me. I said, Ian, what do you need? And he said, I need people on this course or they're not coming. I was like, okay, I filled it. And I got me on it as well because I wanted to do it. That was the motivation. It was me. Um, so the 10 of us, I think it was, did CRT in the UK. Anne came over. Anne was a, Anne, it, this is her package, cellular release therapy. She's been working with people in trauma for like the last 40 years. She understands hypnotherapy. She's got a, she started off at counselling rape victims. And so she's got this. So uh, to go and do this and to train, um, you have to participate. I didn't know that I had anything. So I wrote this little list down of things I wanted to deal with. Nothing up top. And within the first couple of sessions, things were starting to change. And then I got up one morning and I... I'd never been able to meditate. So we're doing these sessions and they're really like little ones to start with. 
And I get up one morning and we, um, uh, everyone is like asleep. I make myself a coffee because we all live in the house together while we're training. And I lay on this wooden table and the sunshine's amazing. The birds are amazing. And I just start doing this breath of like this breathing and I just drop and I felt myself fall. And all of a sudden I'm doing one of the best white water races of my life. And I'm going through the sequence of feeling it in my mind and my body in totality and the rush and the adrenaline, except I'm just laying on a table in the sunshine. I've never been able to meditate. And here I am re-experiencing that, that full run. visualisation. And I come up and I look like I have snaffled a gram of Molly. <laughs> I am pink, glowing. You and, um, and I'm just like lit from head to toe. And I'm just like, what was that? Anyway, we so there's something shifted. Then we go upstairs, and there's different ones. The, the big, the big one for me, and so that's happened. But the enormous one, and this is that's actually after what I'm about to tell you about the enormous, enormous, enormous one. I sit down and I write down my experience of my mum dying, and it's like seven pages of like what, and it's because it was a very specific question. What happened next? So the very first thing was a phone call right through seven A4 pages of my experience. And then what they do is they clear on this. So you're hypnotized and they ask you to release and clear this over and over again. And you use what are called idiomotor signals to answer. You don't speak and you only use your fingers to say yes or no. Can you release and clear this? Yes, you raise a finger. No, you raise a different finger. And I just think I don't want to, I don't want to be in here for this. I know I've got to do it. I know I've got to do it, but I don't want to experience it. And that day I'd been walking down the road and I'd seen this amazing red kite flying in the sky. And I looked at this bird and it just didn't want to, it knew I was there, but it just didn't want to acknowledge me. And I walked away and I'm laying on this bed and someone's near me who's also training and they're like, right, let's start. And they begin. And I just close my eyes. And I just hear this enormous eagle call, like it screeched so loud and I just felt myself pull out of my own body. And like the next thing, I'm experiencing this, this experience where I'm up, I'm soaring, and I'm seeing the world from a bird's eye view, and I'm just going around. And as I'm doing it, I'm collecting parts of myself with the assistance of this consciousness. And so I'm going from place to place, and I'm watching sunsets. And what I'm actually doing in the process was it was colour. I was going and picking up different bits of colour. And I go to, I felt like I was out in different places of the universe. It's all very, like, unexplainable in terms of feelings, but it was just like this very lucid, vivid dream where I'm with consciousness of birds. And then I'm stood on this balcony and I'm just watching, like, this massive show of, like, this one incredible energy just move around. And I'm observing it and it was just... And then this next thing I'm being told to wake up and... I've been out for two hours. I've answered something like 72 questions with no awareness. Wow. And except I wake up and I feel myself for the first time and I'm covered in sweat and I've been crying and I've clearly been moving about and I open my eyes and the room is the whitest white I have ever seen. And the temperature from the, the window, I can feel it. There's like this breeze on my arms. And I just think, I'm back. Where have I been? <laughs> and I'm different. And 
I can feel. And then that was, and it was only in those moments I was like, I haven't been feeling and something has left, something has gone and I'm different. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's, and that was, something had shifted so hugely in those moments. And then I, I got up from that and then there was just like this gentle cascade of all my senses came back to life in totality and my zest for life returned and my memory returned. But it didn't just return. It came back at full force and I was then speed reading, absorbing books, um, learning at hyperspeed. And I decided in that moment that that's what I would do for the rest of my life. I would create adjuncts to subconscious learning that enable people to heal from the things that are hidden. So... You're married still at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, as we sit here today, January 2020... Not married. You're not married today, yeah. but the breakthrough project is is your... I guess this is the inception in your mind yeah. without, without it actually came, framing it. It came back and I just came home and I was like, we need to build an office. And right. so I just, like straight down I don't even know how to build an office the mm. next thing I've got like wood and drills and plasterboard and, and you're creating an environment yeah build an office and mm. then within and then I just start taking action on it and like within a month my board is full of people that are wanting to experience what I've done and I'm practicing with people and then all of a sudden I'm starting to get these sh like because I just went at it it's like results like people were just dropping problems stuff 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 and I was getting better and better but it wasn't enough like what happened was I love Anne's work it is extraordinary but for me it was like all of a sudden I was like am I capable of more can I do more so when you say you, you build the office and you start to work with people have you done any formal training in hypnotherapy at that point or is it a case so of... So what I... Anne's stuff was like nine days of intense stuff. So she trained us in hypnotherapy at that stage in her So you're being package. treated, as it were. Yeah. You're exercising your own yeah, and, energies. And then, and, and, cause I, and then I just was so wide open, at which point I just was like inhaling anything mm. that anyone had written. So like I was like absorbing like anything Darren Brown. I was watching Darren Brown. I was like, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? How's he doing that? Why, you know, it was just like, what is happening here? And just taking it to pieces to understand the process. And and then like and then just like what is going on with that human's body language? Because I'd been doing it for so long already, it was instinctive. And then there, there was just this other piece of me that was able to just like just move straight through someone's shit and be like, I've got it. I know what it is. Let's work on this. And it would be so far from what they walked in with. Yeah, it would just collapse their whole problem and they'd walk out. And I've had people that have come in and they've been like, it, it's looked like depression. And then when you take it apart, something traumatic has happened to them two years before that they're completely unaware of and there's been this slow regression. And then all of a sudden, it's that moment that's changed their lives, except they don't recognise themselves because it happened so slowly. And you deal with that and they come back to life. That's amazing. And so... That like that was what was kind of going on, and but it wasn't enough for me because I was just so curious, and I was like, so uh, and like when you're working with trauma all the time, like it becomes like it's not like I really love young creatives. I love people that are creative, like and they that 
people that are creative tend to have a I don't want to suggest here I see sometimes that people are creative have to feel trauma to evoke their creativity that's not the case and people need to learn ways around that but there's there's sometimes like a there's model a theme, there's a model that's given to these mm. artists and so they they can be people that have more stuff but because their minds are capable of being more creative and they're more exploratory you can have so i can have so much fun with them and they heal quick so but they've got they come forward so i love working with that group and can i book my first session <laughs> sure come, just come and have a play but there's and so and then all of a sudden like people were ringing me up and they were like man my teen is being thrown out of school he's chucking chairs around the classroom will you do stuff i spoke to this kid for six weeks he saved another kid from jumping off the bridge like brilliance doesn't necessarily have to look like an a b or c you know 100 so like and this is, is creating pieces in people that make them understand that they are worthy and that they are they have full of pure potential and evoking that and coming back out do you find at this time with the social media climate and the, the kind of oh, zooming don't. in on the we'll vanity do, of our let's do a whole other separate, podcast because yeah, I think, I think it, it would yeah. just like it, it, it's enormous it's, it's, the, it's, this, it's the climate of the time isn't it it's, it's a gift and a curse mm. so there's this ability to reach and that's what I did I realised that very quickly and then that following December I ran a show online. I went live every night for 30 minutes in December at 9.30 and ran a comedy show where there was huge amounts of interaction. And the idea behind it was I knew how painful December could be because of my history and what you, some people have to face at those times when everyone else is being super joyful and super pumped. And like I was at that one point in my life, I was the, that elf and then I wasn't. Because I had, it was December that my mum did something. And so I had to overcome those anniversaries. And then I just thought, I can't be the only one that feels like that. And I had a tricky childhood. So whereas some people would be like raging, raving about Christmas, I... So polarising. Yeah, it it's, it's, and mag, it's like, it's so big. And so I was like, what can you do? And so... I went online every night on a Facebook page and just ran this show. And people, when, when we put the show notes in, we can link back to these people. Yeah, see people want to watch it. it. Yeah. And it's just it's just me being an utter buffoon. Like, I'm complete, like, it's full man's mode. And Christmas is kind of like a funny time, especially if you've got kids, in that you ca- it is funny. It's like funny ha-ha, like, because you're losing your fucking mind. Well, reindeers are fucking flying, for God's sake. <laughs> I know. It's like, let's get in there. Oh, yeah, I like, there's a whole story about Santa Claus being yes. a social and um we and so so we, yeah so the long night went out and it ran for 30 nights and it was not scripted it just was live and it was like whoever turned up who just wanted a mate to chat with them and find out about their day and it went crazy and it really did good work and i didn't know that until the day before New Year's Eve and I'd set my thing if this reaches one person and makes their Christmas easier I've done my job and I get this email in my inbox it's in that weird inbox that Facebook doesn't always show you because I'm not friends with this person and they said to me Amanda my my husband committed suicide last year I'm in my 20s I did not know how I was going to get through this Christmas and the ones I've watched, the ones that I can, I couldn't watch them all, 
And I'm going into New Year with hope because of the long nights. And I just broke down into tears because I knew. I was like, you did it. You you did it. It didn't cost you any money. It just costed you time. You had to give something up. And this, and it, then the reach on it was massive. And so, and it was just one good intention to combat loneliness. It's so simple. Yeah. So and simple. so the internet has the potential to do so much good. Mm. Um, but we have to get we, on board. Like we have to develop a whole educational system of how we l- learn to navigate and use the internet it feels yeah. like to me and so and i like what i i mean like the, the internet has to get on board and but it's got the potential to do so much good but there is a part of the human mind that takes mirroring very seriously so what it sees opposite it and we i don't know that often on screens whether because you're seeing yourself that necessarily gets playtime and there's so much pressure in the world right now there's so like awe and curiosity are taking a backseat to anxiety and stress and performance and adults need to play they absolutely do and so often we're lost inside of like this wheel of activity and we're demonstrating to the future generations what we expect and so I just, I just think there can be so much good done, and like, and people just contact me. People just get in. People find me on Facebook. They go to the Breakthrough Project, and they're like, "Amanda, I, you know, I'm struggling with this or this." And it, I, like, I had somebody. It's an amazing story. It's a girl called Ella, who was absolutely crippled with fibromyalgia, and she came in, and. With, she'd been on heavy medication. She couldn't leave her room. She was exhausted all the time. We did six sessions, and she went back at the end of those six sessions to working as an international tour guide, pain-free. And that is such a common condition as well, isn't it, the fibro? Yeah, so I'm not saying that every single person that's got fibro is going to have Ella's story, but... You, sometimes you have to start looking around the edges of what is going on to see if you can evoke change. There's, an, there's another incredible client I know who has a chronic pain condition. There's nothing she can do about the situation she finds herself in because at some point in her life she was given drugs and they have created a change in her body. That wasn't her choice. She trusted the medical system. It was unlucky. Um, now she has to manage her pain. She doesn't want to take morphine all the time. She doesn't want it. And she's a young girl. So what we did was I taught her how to self-anesthetize through hypnosis. She's already got the experience of being numb from taking morphine, which means her brain remembers it. So if you can evoke that feeling, because it's a feeling, you can get some downtime from your pain without having to up your morphine prescription and it doesn't have that awful extra effect. So she's been able to come down on her dose. She's not off of it. That's not possible. But because she's using a subconscious modality. And that's pretty awesome. Because, and also taking some control. Yes, precisely. So that is so, and that's so powerful in these conditions because often people are just like, what can I do? And then there she is. She does it every day. So she, and she's. Like, and we've started to play. So now that she's doing that and she's doing it so well, and she's got this natural ability at being able to do it, I, like she just took to it. And I don't know if that is something to do with being 
in a place where you're fight, like in these conditions. Actually, I do. I absolutely do know that. That if you if you are someone that has spent a lot of time in heightened states and then you break that cycle, you've still got the machinery, but you can do it in a and so in an uncomfortable state, you can take yourself into a euphoric state. You've trained. You've just spent the years looking at something uncomfortable. You know, so your brain has done the work. It's just how you're mobilising it. That's, Connecting dots yeah. and... and so but, it's so exciting, but thank you for like, letting well, listen, me Listen, you in. know, as, uh, with, the, with the Breakthrough Project, that's essentially you being contacted by people who find you, I guess, generally by word of mouth, is it? That, You've yeah, got pages. I do. So the, there's the breakthroughproject.life and you can you can find a page there. The best place to track me down is on Facebook. Just type in the Breakthrough Project and you'll you'll see it. And um, and it's and you can ask questions. There's a group. If people really want to get in deep and want to learn how to lucid dream for like better thought control or like want to experience past life regressions or just looking like I'm always looking at different ways in which we can start learning about ourselves or create change that's that's what I'm really interested in then there's a group so it's called the Breakthrough Project Rising Strong just click it it's on Facebook come in and come and see there's loads of videos up there people can ask questions in there anytime they like I'm always happy to try and explore stuff with people um where I'm going with this is I don't believe it has to take a long time to change the way you are in terms of what you're experiencing if if you're willing to try something different. And so I my in essence the state that I was locked in through PTSD got crushed in 2 hours and then my life completely that and utterly quickly. changed. Yeah. I was I was like I went I was under hypnosis I came up and my entire sensory nervous system was back and available to me. Did you I mean where do you stand with the idea that you know relationships the stress of relationships circumstances environments that people are in contributing factors when maybe they have that epiphany is that something that happens as a byproduct that maybe they start to move away from negative It's re it's really it has such an interesting conversation because as soon as somebody becomes more self-aware, and what that means is that they're no longer internalised but externalised, they are going to... They're energetically, I tell you, this sounds a bit weird, but they have changed. Their demeanour has changed. The way they move in the world has changed. Their tone in their voice has changed. Their confidence yeah. has changed. And it might just be for an hour. And what... I do make people aware of this because someone might enter an environment where they are behaving differently. So often there's an expectation for us to be a certain way when we go back home, let's say, or with your old school friends. You kind of adopt the personality that you may have had then, your place in that tribe. So there's external factors that can be going on. And often what I do is I make the people that work for me aware of that because they will have the wider sight to notice the languaging or the way that someone's acting. And often that's because they've altered their way of being. And that puts that other person who may not be happy about that under under a question mark about, are, are they willing to change? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's there's there's always a kind of payoff in relationships and sometimes I'm literally coaching clients 
through that symbiosis so that they can maintain their way of being. That's super interesting, and uh, I am going to be sitting down with you. I this I I have the best job in the whole world. I get to work with people in a way that understands them as an individual and takes into context the things that they think have created such damage within them and turn it into pure potential. Well. As I wanted to summarise, as we as we come to the end of this this wonderful and thank you for your time as well. This has been I amazing. I love talking on a podcast, Sam. You're but welcome. Having listened to you describe, you know, and I think I pointed out a couple of times during the podcast, you know, you've got this motivational, driving energy that's accompanied by a certain level of discipline that you see things through and you're determined and all of the doors that you opened for yourself whether it started with a rocky a rocky sequence and you run around the block on an estate to then, you know, the trauma of, of your father passing, your, your mother slowly sort of, regressing, I guess, yeah. regressing and you going into a foster care system but then you're always chasing this, this desire to achieve and fulfil yourself through adrenaline or whatever it may be. Each door opening, each door opening. You know, that's a really important message for people... As you said, having people around you say you can do things, and how it's led you to to do this now to to put that back into people. I mean, it's a perfect it's a perfect position for you to be in. You harnessed a lifetime of Challenges. whatever was driving you <laughs> yeah, that like... you didn't understand. Now you understand, and you're able to implement it and help other people realize that we all have an ability in us to be more than what we framed ourselves as. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and. That's the important word, frame, because when you understand that it is a frame and that there's the opportunity for you to look at the world differently, you will experience the world differently. Mm. And sometimes that takes like deep on embedding. Sometimes that takes a huge experience. Sometimes that just takes one tiny step in the right direction. Mm. And those things, those beliefs just fall away. That's amazing. This has been fabulous, wonderful, magical. Uh, thanks, Sam. Thank you so much, Amanda. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And Well, we're going to do it again because I think, yeah. like you, you alluded to, the, the whole internet question, the climate, you know, in there's, your work. There's so many apps, adjuncts to this stuff. There's, like, uh, like, there's stuff that I'm really interested in now, which is, like, psychedelic retreats. Mm -hmm. um, there's that, that, that whole area I became really interested in when I was looking at PTSD research and how MDMA is, is coming to to the forefront of like like coming into this line of work and it's i think anything that can create a safe profound experience is going to be developmental and so when i'm looking at change now i'm i'm expecting to go to the edges of what is available and and create that environment like I, i've done that so that i can go back to my client base and say i did this and i would fully recommend it so mm. it's there's so much stuff out there right now that we don't understand and we don't understand about consciousness. We still don't know where that comes from and just how the nervous system is working and what we can do. Um, so it, it's a really exciting time for me to be where I am. And and I I'm always on the hunt for better ways for people to heal faster. That's amazing. Well, I love the psychedelic angle as well, so I think we're going to be doing a series with you, Amanda, <laughs> and we shall, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of go for the caveat 
off of this conversation and we'll go into the yeah, social media the psychedelics and you know really explore it yeah. this has been amazing thank you very much thank you Amanda peace you're welcome thank you for listening to Chew the Chat podcast thank you for listening to Chew the Cat podcast Chew the Cat I want to say my own words. go on then Well, how powerful is Amanda? That was uh, was a little bit longer than the first two episodes, but, you know, we were kind of in that spot where we had to keep pushing along with that because that was um, some story, eh? For for Amanda to sort of come from what seems like a, you know, when you move 30 times when you're a kid, especially in a big city like London, you know, where it's just busy, busy, busy and different faces, different places. Everybody's alone with everybody in a, in a weird way in London, I always find. Um, you know, and obviously her dad passing away of cancer suddenly when she was young and her mum deteriorating. It's weird. I mean, we often joke, you know, you hear the eye of the tiger and everybody sort of has a bit of a joke about, fucking hell, let's do it. Come on, I've got, I'm, I'm, I've got the mojo. But that literally was a trigger for Amanda to you know, get out and run and do something and that led one thing to another and her tenacity, her drive just led her from one sort of amazing endeavour to the other and I think I pointed out during the conversation but I'll say it again now, you know, for young people listening, if there's young people listening in this day and age where our wonderful evolution of um, creativity and technology has allowed us to be so comfortable we sometimes forget that good old graft looking somebody in the eye putting the putting the confidence to in yourself to, to step up and do something get involved with something um, without expectation other than you know to prove yourself a little bit I think that's that's something I gleaned from this conversation you open a door you might find something in there if there's nothing in there you walk through it and open the next door there's nothing to lose really um, so I found that to be a kind of reoccurring theme with Amanda she's just got the confidence to just kick it out there and go for it um and as george harrison famously once said something will happen something always happens so that was wonderful i mean it sounded fucking harrowing when she starts to go you know recognize the ptsd you know and the images of the kids in behind the fences in afghanistan in in, you know war-torn afghanistan with her her own children's faces i mean that's some serious, some serious, uh, yeah, visions, things to deal with that must just be fucking difficult if that kind of thing's waking you up at night. But, you know, she did the right thing and, and took note and didn't try and bury it under the, under the rug. Um, I mean, even when she talked about the Afghan bomb, bomb builder guy who was prolific and, you know, probably responsible for a hell of a lot. And she's got that dichotomy of, you know, it's her job to, to, keep this guy alive and to treat him and to be a human and for me when I look at war I often think you know when you when you get down into the micro situations we're humans aren't we and you're brown and you're black and you're yellow and I'm white but all we want is just to be loved and to give love and but somehow it all gets fucking tangled and messed up and out of control but yeah she uh, she's taken those experiences 
all of them from from that childhood and from obviously being out there and not just being out there and dealing with the things in front of her face, but, you know, her husband being out there, flying out on the chopper and she can hear the chopper and she doesn't know, shit, you know, one's gone down, is it my husband? I mean, that's it's crazy. And this is happening all the time, every day. We've got guys all over the world right now, people going through this. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing to even to imagine for yourself. Um but I love what Amanda's done, you know, harnessing it with, with her project, the Breakthrough Project. She's really using all of that that skill and that, that experience and that trauma to help other people, and she's doing a wonderful job. It's magical. I mean, for, for the Olympics to come around as it did, you know, for her to actually be at the Olympics and to to experience that in that way and to, to get, in a weird way, like a closure, like a full circle closure... Of, of that journey in many ways was just, I thought, I thought that was beautiful. And again, a testament to kind of just, you know, she wrote the letter, she put it on the page, she licked the stamp, she sent it off. I think fucking writing a letter for us now just seems like fucking hiking up a thousand foot mountain. It's like, I don't know, we live in mad times. I said in the intro, these phones, they're our friends, they're amazing, they're glorious, but they're fucking dangerous as well. Um, and I think, yeah, again, I will take that away that, putting it out there, getting in front of people, creating a situation for yourself. I think one thing leads to another and people are yearning that more so than ever, whether they know it or not right now. I think we are yearning real, real things from one another. So listen, that was amazing. I will link Amanda in the show notes, in the description, uh, the Breakthrough Project. You can find her. Um, she's got multiple links she's on all the usual places as you can imagine so you can find her um obviously on instagram she's amanda underscore wanowski um she's in facebook with the breakthrough project and her website is the breakthrough project dot life so check her out but all those will be noted in the description so thank you very much to amanda that was episode three okay We'll say thank you to our sponsors, Go Deep Flotation. Wonderful, wonderful. I mean, listening to that podcast, I mean, fucking get on the phone, speak to those wonderful people at Go Deep and get in that pod for 60 minutes and tune out, put the phone down and tune into yourself and let whatever our mundane trauma is, which is life's busy life's crazy you know if you stop and think about it for long enough there's always something we've got to iron the school uniforms we've got to tick the box we've got to send the email we've got to fill in the form we've got to update the tax there's always something however mundane it seems they all collate and become this this never-ending conveyor belt of just fucking doing humans doing not humans being so yeah now is the time after listening to that podcast to go and just give yourself some love and lay in, a, lay in that tank and just MOT your physical body and your psychology and let it come back out and bleed it into your life. Those guys will look after you wonderfully over there. They're beautiful people that go deep and you get 10% off if you use the code word CHEW. So do that. GoDeepFlotation.com Okay, we are back on the schedule of every two weeks now. Uh, threw me off a little bit because the first episode went down so well and we got such a great reaction and it happened to be a two-parter that we threw the next part out in the following week. 
So we kind of gave you a bonus early doors in Chew the Chats um, podcasting career there because uh, this week was obviously a schedule because we're going to be every other week. I don't want to saturate it. I think we've got so much content everywhere. I just don't want to saturate anything. I want to keep it maybe something you look forward to because it's every other couple of weeks. Talking of flotation, we're going to bring in Kieran Rattigan owner founder of go deep rotation so you guys can meet kieran obviously you've heard me talk about him uh from a from a distance through these sponsors so you're going to get to meet kieran in person you're going to get to hear his journey how that got started for him what got him into this life of recognizing that we need to take time with ourselves and just tune into ourselves and allow that and just chill out a little bit so he's a wonderful person you're gonna love him all sorts to come in that episode his mum was an opera singer he 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 says he learned at a young age that sound could move objects so it's it's a really fun episode and yeah again kieran's got some really interesting career career curves and bends that, that, that come up he worked on a tour with kasabian and worked for one of the big music marketing companies in the uk and yeah, he was in bands and made music and he's a creative soul and he's a lovely soul and he's, with the flotation therapy that he's offering now, there's a really sweet ending to how he feels about that. And yeah, I think you're going to love that. Um, I'm going to throw it in there now. 10% off, code word chew, godeep.com, search him out and get floating. So thanks ever so much, everybody. If you did enjoy this, like, subscribe, share, rate, review, comment, you know retweet all of those things they really do help us the algorithms are bugger of a thing for you know beginning podcasts small podcasts but if you do take the time to subscribe like review um it really does help with that algorithm gives the podcast some traction and allows it to reach more people like you more people like me we're all in a little club we're building here and it's a wonderful thing it's a it's um a magical thing like i said in the intro to think that there's people sat Right now, we've got listeners that are developing uh, community-wise in America, in Australia. We've got a handful of listeners in Denmark, in Holland, in France. I mean, it's baffling. It really is. So to everybody who's listening and the people who have reviewed and liked and commented and people who just listened and told friends, because that's as powerful as anything, just tell a friend, share it with somebody that you think will enjoy it, will take something from it. And uh, we are sending nothing but love. This is amazing. It's exciting. Um, really enjoying it. Um, I just want to, yeah, meet more interesting people and share these stories because we all benefit from it. So thank you very much, guys. We'll see you in two weeks. I was going to give an update on the pub Bible situation, but I've been rambling on that long because I'm excited and um, I'm going to leave your ears. So take care of one another. We'll talk about pub Bible uh, next time because there is some exciting stuff, but like I say, too much. Let's crack on. Enjoy your week, guys. Peace.